Good morning, fellas. Hey, uh, well, this is maybe a first. Um, <laughs> not real sure how to tell you this, but um, so I thought Bobby had one more week. And uh, he thought uh, I was up today. So I walk in this morning, and uh, he goes, no, you're up. I'm like, yeah, no, no, you're up. So um, so. Mm. <laughs> Fellas, I, I'm not ready. So what we're going to do is, is we're going to let you guys go to your groups and come back, and hopefully between now and then, I can get my stuff together and have a message for you. So Kegler, will you come up and pray for us? Okay, you can sit down. You what? You can sit down. <laughs> All right, fellas. The, the truth is, is I'm a bad actor, and I really am ready. But the question, and the whole point of this message, is are you ready? Right? That's what Matthew 24, 25 is all about. And I hate this microphone, because we didn't really wire it for us. Can I use this, Ryan? Uh Hey, you know, and here's the thing, guys, is that some of you guys, I imagine you go, oh, my gosh, that guy's standing up there, and he is not ready. And if you had an inkling, and I know we laughed and a lot, but if you had an inkling of, man, I feel bad for that guy. Well, let me just tell you something. I think Matthew 24, 25, what Christ is trying to communicate to us, if you got anything out of that passage is you better be ready. Because there will be a day when he returns, and much worse than just some chump standing on stage who wasn't ready to give a speech, we're not going to be ready to meet our Master, our Lord and our Savior. And at that point, gang, there's going to be nothing we can do to help each other. It's going to be a time of judgment. And we live like he's never coming back. I mean, that's something... Perhaps we know that we, we sign off on on a doctrinal statement. But the reality that Christ's return is imminent is altogether a different thing. And it doesn't affect the way we lead our businesses. It doesn't affect the way we lead our kids. It doesn't affect the way in which we share with friends who are far from God. It has little impact on our lives. And Christ's point is, hey, you better be ready, because it's coming. And when it comes, it's over. And so in the few minutes that I do have left after my Oscar-winning uh, performance there, I want us to take a, a quick look at this. And there's two chapters here, and obviously it's a, um, it's a, it's a lot to look at. And what I want to do is just set your, your group up for success as best I can. 
And I, real quickly to do that, I just want to take a look back. Sometimes you get, you know, um, you kind of get lost in the minutia, perhaps, if you're like me. And we're now in Matthew 24, and, and perhaps you've forgotten, hey, Matthew 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. And so if you remember, Matthew wrote his gospel to present Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, as the king that was promised long ago in the Old Testament. And um, Matthew centers his gospel around five of Jesus' messages. They're called, if you go to seminary, there's discourses or sermons or, or messages. And the first one is the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. And then the second long discourse is in chapter 10, his instructions to his disciples about Israel. And then you have um, kingdom parables in chapter 13, where he, after he's been rejected in chapter 12, he now begins to speak um, in parables. And then in chapter 18, he gives instructions to his disciples about the church. And then finally, where we are today, and, and this is the last of the, um, the messages that he gives. And each message is, you'll see this little literary device there, they all end with the phrase, and it came about when Jesus had finished. And, and then you have narrative in between. But the book finally closes in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, the Great Commission, where it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even in the end of the age. And what Matthew's doing here is he's, He's presenting to you who Christ is and that he is the king of kings. He's the king of the Jews. He's the long-awaited Messiah. That's why he opens in Matthew 1, giving us a genealogy, showing us that Jesus um, is the son of Abraham, the son of David. He fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies. He's the expected one. Wake up, Jewish nation. Our king is born. Mark shows he's the suffering servant. Luke, that he's the perfect man. John, that he's the savior of the world. But Matthew, that he's the king of the kings, and the emphasis is on his teaching. And so he has these five messages. And, and today's study focuses on that, that last message. And context is key here. Um, it's the Passion Week. Jesus has made his way into Jerusalem. He's been cheered by the crowds. It's been Palm Sunday already. Then he gets in a scuffle and, with the Pharisees, which we read about last week. And he, you see the seven woes there. Then he rebukes the Pharisees, and then uh, he laments over Jerusalem, that Jerusalem um, hasn't repented. And then you have chapter 24 where it opens, where, where Christ speaks of the destruction of the temple. And, and the disciples are just puzzled by what in the world could he be talking about, the destruction of the temple. And, um, and so... Um, He's standing on the Mount of Olives, and they ask him two questions. The first question is, they ask him, when will these things be? When will this take place? Specifically, what they're asking there is, hey, you're talking about the destruction of the temple, that these things are just going to be leveled to ashes. When's that going to take place? We don't understand. And then the second question they ask him is, what's the sign of your, of your return? Explain to us what it is that you're speaking of. And then so for two chapters, Jesus explains um, how uh, the events of the future are going to take place. And just a quick overview of this message, 
In chapter 24, verses 4 through 31, you see the events preceding Christ's return. These are the birth pains, if you will. Jesus says that false prophets are going to arise, wars and rumors of wars. There'll be famines, earthquakes, persecution, lawlessness. But yet, despite all this, the gospel is going to spread. And so, what he says is, it's like a woman giving birth. The contractions are few and far between in the beginning. But as time goes on, they become more and more intense. Because the delivery is coming. And in the same way, what he says here is, gang, there are going to be signs, there are going to be birth pangs. They're going to come about. And, and soon, they're going to happen rapidly. And you're going to take note and, and just be ready. And here are the signs of, of what's going to happen before my return. And then he talks about the um, events preceding, um, I'm sorry, then he talks about the lessons on waiting, watching, and preparing for Christ's return. And this is in uh, chapter 24, verse 36 through 25 and 30. He talks about that it will be like the days of Noah, that people weren't expecting judgment to come. When Noah built his ark and judgment was imminent, people were just giving themselves away to um, their own selfish desires. With, with no recognition of God or his will for their lives. And in the same way, when the Son of Man comes back, Christ's argument is, is that it's going to be just like that. That there are going to be many people who just aren't ready. He talks about um, the head of a household. who, um, If the head of the household knew when the thief was going to come, then certainly he would prepare himself. He talks about the slave who's entrusted by his, his master, um, to care for the home while he's away, but yet this slave is a wicked slave and, and beats the other servants. And, and certainly if he knew that the master was going to return, if he lived with a readiness, he wouldn't live like that. He speaks about the ten virgins, five virgins who make themselves ready and who are prudent and wise, and then five virgins who, um, who are foolish and who are not ready for the groom. And then he speaks about um, the talents, that you have three different individuals. One individual is given one talent, another individual two, another individual five. And what do they do with these talents while the master is away? Because once he does return, then he seeks an, his money back with interest. And one is foolish and, and two are wise in how they steward what's been given to him. And then finally he ends with a warning of judgment and a promise of reward for when he returns. And this is known as, as the parable of the sheep and the goats. And what Christ is saying here is just like a good shepherd can look out onto his flock and he can distinguish, hey, here are the sheep and here are the goats, and he separates them. In the same way, so too does our Savior know those who are his. It's just like what John 10 is a great cross-reference here, where Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. And the sheep know his voice, and he knows his sheep. And what he's saying here, guys, is there may be many um, who may proclaim me, many who may profess me, but those who really know me, they're going to be the ones who care for the least of these. It's going to be more than just word or tongue, but it's going to be a, a faith in me that's demonstrated by action and in truth. And he says quite simply that, um, those who know him and those who tend to the least of these, they will be rewarded. But the goats, those who, are, who don't have a relationship with the king, they will be judged. It will be a time of judgment. 
So that's just a brief overview, and, and I know you've all studied that this week, but that's just a, a brief summary of um, the passage. But I want to give you three keys for interpreting this passage, and then I, I want to answer three pertinent questions. And, and I think in order to unlock the meaning of this passage, there's three things you've got to keep in mind. And the first one is this, is that's the tension between the Old, Te- Old Testament prophecies and the Jewish expectations of a conquering king. Versus the occupation of Israel by Rome. So you have to read this in light of the fact that the Jewish mindset, because of what the Old Testament promised about a conquering king who would come, the son of David, the son of Abraham who would come and overthrow Israel's enemies. But yet, Israel is occupied by a foreign nation, Rome. And so... The disciples are sitting there on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus is going to talk about the destruction of the temple, the very symbol of, of where the presence of God dwelt. The, the temple was to be the place where, where God would reunite with his people, and, and, um, and the people would worship him. It was the hub of, of, of um, Israel, Israel's worship. And so when he speaks of the destruction of the temple, the, the disciples are sitting there going, I, we just don't understand this. You're supposed to be the king. When are you going to help us overthrow Rome? We've watched you work miracles. The time's now. And what they didn't understand there is that, is that Christ came as a lamb and he is going to return as a lion. He came as a lamb, as a sacrifice. For the sins of the world, but he's going to return as the judge and the conquering king. And they didn't understand the timetable. The Jewish expectation, look at Luke chapter 1 real quickly. You see in um, Zechariah's prophecy, Zechariah was John the Baptist's father. And when he learns of the, of the role that John the Baptist is going to play, look what he says, because I think this little passage here best represents what the Jews expected of the birth of the Messiah. Luke 1, verse 67 says, And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father. See, what he's saying here is is that the Messiah is going to be born, finally, salvation from our enemies. The one um, who was spoken of long ago, God promised Abraham that one would come. God promised that through David, one would come who would provide salvation for enemies. And he's finally here. Verse 74, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of their tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. This little song right here by John the Baptist's father represents the Jewish expectation of what the Messiah would do. And so when we read what what Jesus is saying here is to what's about to happen. The disciples are incredulous. They, they, they can't even, this totally blows their, their way of thinking. And it's surprising to them. 
The second key I think you have to understand when interpreting this passage is that biblical prophecy sometimes compresses near and far events in contiguous prophetic statements. Okay, And so Jesus is going to speak about the destruction of Jerusalem, which we know from history does occur in 70 AD. Jerusalem um, is destroyed. But that is a partial fulfillment, is a foreshadowing of what more revelation teaches us is going to happen during the tribulation. That there is going to be a greater destruction, that there's going to be greater pain, greater sorrow. And so a, a way to think about this is it's like if you were in Colorado and you look at a mountain range and you look at it from far off, it looks like when you look at the mountain peaks, it looks like the mountains are really close to each other. But then if you were to actually go stand on a mountain peak and look at the one across the way, you go, wait a minute, it's not nearly as close as a look down there. And that's the way in which prophecy is, is laid out often, is that you'll see intertwined in the way in which it's, it's written that there is a near and then there is a far fulfillment. And that's the same thing that happens here. That there is an aspect of what, of what Jesus is saying is true, which will happen in uh, Matthew 24 and 25 in the near future. But it awaits a greater fulfillment at a later time. And the third key I want to share with you is that there's a difference between what theologians refer to as the rapture and the second coming. This passage is specifically referring to the second coming of Christ. And the way to think about this is that the rapture refers to when Christ comes for his church and we meet him in the air. And the second coming speaks specifically of when he comes with the church to execute judgment against his enemies. And so what Jesus is specifically addressing here is not the rapture, but what he's referring to here is his second coming. And as, as you've heard and, and studied perhaps in the past, there is the, in the events of history, you have the cross, you have the church age, okay? then you have the rapture, followed by seven years of tribulation, the second coming, and then the millennial reign for a thousand years. Finally, I want to close with just um, answers to three quick questions that, that people ask often. If what I just share with you is true, then in what sense is Christ's return imminent? In what sense is Christ's return imminent? Why does he tarry? And finally, what's our responsibility? Well, I want to quote one, one man who explains in what sense is the Lord's return imminent for the sake of time. He says this, The exact time remains hidden from us as it was from the apostles. But Christ could nonetheless come at any time. The judge is still at the door. The day is still at hand. There are no other events that must occur on the prophetic calendar before Christ comes to meet us in the air. He could come at any moment. And it is in this sense that Christ's coming is imminent. In the very same sense, his coming was imminent even in the days of the early church. So when we read when Paul spoke in such a way as that it appeared as if Paul even expected that Christ could come back. And that throughout the New Testament there was this expectation that they had and that we should have that it could come at any moment. And the sense that it is imminent means simply means that there's nothing that needs to happen in the prophetic calendar. We don't have to wait for anything. That the rapture could occur at any moment. And so which leads to the next question is then, why does he wait? I mean, it's been 2,000 plus years. 
What's he doing? Is he asleep? Has he forgotten us? And that answer is found in 2 Peter 3, which Bobby read to you last week. And I want to remind you, it says this, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. This is the guy you work with. Hey, you crazy Christian, you believe you actually believe that Christ is going to return? Why? You, I mean, you crazy? It's been 2,000 years. You still hold out the, th- the thinking that perhaps he's going to return? Peter goes on and says, For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire and kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. In other words, God is not bound by our clock or our timetable. And then verse 9, which is the key to this text, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why hadn't he returned? Because he waits for you. He waits for those you love. He waits for your neighbors. He waits for your children, your co-workers, your parents, to repent. And there were generations before my birth who were praying for the Lord to return. And I'm certainly glad he didn't answer their prayers to give me a chance to have a right relationship with the Father. And so he waits for you. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, he's waiting on you to respond to his gift of grace and mercy. And we need to be ready because there will be a day where he goes, time's up. In the meantime, our responsibility is to do three things. And I just want to read Romans 13, 11 through 14. It sums it up well. Paul essentially says this. Number one, wake up. It's appropriate for a Bible study at 6.30 in the morning, right? Wake up. Wake up to the reality that he's coming back. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from your sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. In other words, it may be 2,000 years, but it's 2,000 years closer than it was when he left, right? We get closer and closer. Wake up. Verse 12, put off. The night is almost gone, the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. In other words, quit living like he's not going to return. Put, us, put off, take aside our sinful habits in foolish ways. And instead, put on. Verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to his loss. Wake up. Repent, put off. And finally, put on the armor of God, making no provision for the flesh in regards to his lust.
No provision. That's what it looks like, gang, to be ready for his coming. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you, Father, that you have waited and have given us today a chance to respond in faith. I pray, Father, that you would search our hearts, convict the hearts of those, Lord, uh, who have yet to receive your gift of grace. Father, I pray that this message, um, Lord, would, would literally just haunt them until, Lord, they are uh, able to respond in faith to your gift of mercy and your love. And for those of us, Lord, who do know you but live foolishly, unwisely, as if your return is not a present reality, I pray, Father, that you would convict our hearts. That, Father, you would help wake us up. That we'd put off, Lord, uh, our sinful ways, our uh, broken uh, ways of coping, and to put on the armor of Christ, making no provision for the flesh in regards to its loss. Lord, thank you for your Son, and thank you, Father, that although there's much mystery about your returning, the one thing we can be certain of is that one day you will return. And we rejoice and thank you for it. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.